Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. It's Christmas week, Sherry. It is. Are you excited? I am. All right, is all your shopping done? Uh, I Mostly? I mean, it would just be for people in our house. All right, I can't lie. I haven't even started shopping because it's not really Christmas week. We record, we're recording ahead so that we can take Christmas week off and, and just enjoy it. Yes. Actually, I think we do have to record a podcast episode on the week of Christmas, but that way we stay ahead and we get to take the week between Christmas and New Year's off. Won't that be exciting? Um, sure. So when this podcast drops, it's... December 19th, the week of Christmas, also the second day of Hanukkah, and one week, or I don't know, a week and a half from New Year's. I mean, it's just a stressful time of year. Is that why you're shaking your head because it's stressful, or are you shaking your head because I'm a dork trying to figure out all these dates? Yeah, I'm like... Do you have a calendar? Like, do you know how? To... <laughs> hey, Sorry. I looked up Hanukkah. Aren't you proud of well, me? Well, I am proud of you for that. Yeah. But. So, the main thing that we're going to talk about today is stuff that happens. What it's like to be in, in different situations in an alcoholic relationship around the holidays. But we're not just going to talk, like, do a holiday recap of all my drunk escapades for the holidays past, although. Thank God. Yeah. Thank God, he's right. Uh, we're going to put it in the context of something very specific. But before we do that, we need to read and address another listener question. Ooh. I'm excited about these. Are you excited? Yes. So as a reminder, listeners, if you would like to ask Sherry and I a question, again, we're not therapists. Don't ask us for clinical help. But if you want to ask us a question about our experiences, we would love to take your questions. Just send them to Matt at SoberAndUnashamed.com, and that will be in the show notes, so you can link to it. Here's the question. What do your kids think about the podcast and support groups and the time you give to addiction recovery? Hmm. Mm. Hmm. Well, I know that our daughter listens to our podcasts fairly regularly. Are you serious? Yes, that was one of the conversations. It sounds like you and I don't talk, but... I want her to tell you these things, well, Catherine. <laughs> I, I talked <laughs> but, um, to her about stuff over Thanksgiving break, and maybe we talked specifically about the writing, and she said, oh no, I don't read your writing. Right. Um, I think that she listens to things that, like topics that grab her, like a lot of people do when they're scrolling through their podcast stuff. Um, I know that she has a friend who listens to our podcast, who is her age, 20-something. Huh. Um, Did not know either of those things. Yeah. Well, um, I think that most of the time the kids are okay with the time that we spend because we have some calls on Wednesday evenings. Um, And because I think that we have been flexible in that, you know, if there is something that comes up that's super important, you know, we really try to, to work around that. We don't, we still try to devote a lot of time to the kids. Um, so I think they're I think not angry. When you mention the, the calls and the timing of the calls, I think it's funny. Our third child, 
I, I think this is he's just got a lot of my traits and characteristics. We are he looks just like you, but he and I are very similar. <laughs> and one of the ways that we're very similar is this like internal organization clock thing that's annoying and and difficult to possess and I imagine very difficult to live with. But sometimes like if I've got a video call that's just a one off, he'll be like, This isn't the time of your normal video call and I'm like, Yeah. Like I, I have yeah. a life beyond the what you know my schedule to be. Yeah. But I think that's fascinating that he's got the timing of our calls kinda locked into his head. Yeah. Um but I think they're I think they're okay with it. I think as long as I think maybe for our oldest son, as long as we're not like, you know, always reminding him about the dangers of alcohol and, you know, giving him advice and, oh, sending him like articles and things like that about alcoholism because he's a freshman in college and I'm sure he is around, you know, parties and people where they're drinking and um, I think he's keeping his nose clean. I think he's okay with it. It's funny you bring that up because at Thanksgiving break, you know, we've been reading all of the information about fentanyl and how it's... (laughs) Laced in all these Should recreational not. drugs, yeah. not just hard drugs. And and now there's all this information about how they're making colored fentanyl that looks like Skittles or corn pops or not Smarties. Corn pops. Uh, corn tricks. pops. What? Not tricks. Those are white too. I don't, know. I don't know. Colorful Fruit Loops. Fruit Loops. So there's all this information about fentanyl. And so I could not, for the life of me, think of a way that I was going to work this smoothly <laughs> into conversation. So you didn't. So I didn't. <laughs> I said, listen... I am borderline losing sleep about this, so I'm going to talk to you all about this. I have even though to say it. This is not me telling you that I think you are, you know, doing any of this stuff, but you need to understand that if you do what you think is an innocent recreational drug and it's not a particularly hard drug, I think the example I used was ecstasy, which I don't know if like that no gets laced into ecstasy I don't at know all. That. I know. You're like, well, but let's just say you, alcohol was your drug of choice. Right. You did not experiment with... Um, illicit. But I just had to get that off my chest that, you know, a one-time experiment can be deadly as it relates to fentanyl. And they all, they looked at me kind of dumbstruck and then just kind of, none of them were, I don't think any of them were mad that I brought that up as though I was accusing (laughs) them. When we watched, what was the, what's the Steve Carell movie? Beautiful Boy. The drug addicted, it's uh, meth and heroin. That he's addicted to the drug addicted son. teenage son. His name is Nick, and our oldest son's name is Nick. And Nick, our Nick, was really a little bit offended, as though I had searched all the drug addiction movies until I found one where the kid's name was Nick, and I showed him that because I was like, "Look, this is going to happen to you." Yeah. So he took some offense to that. The other thing that Nick does is whenever you and I want to talk to him about something, whether it's has anything to do with drugs and alcohol or not, he says to his siblings, oh, i got to go talk to the therapist now. Yeah. So he makes fun of us for the work that we do, well, even though we're not therapists. Yeah. Well, I kind of feel like I kind of smoothed out your very abrupt... Um, fentanyl talk? Fentanyl conversation, yeah, and I just said... Tell. Well, I just said, you know, like back in mom and dad's day, like marijuana wasn't legal, and I grew up in a town where there was a lot of people that grew marijuana, and I participated in smoking it and it was just you know it was not the stuff that you buy at the pot shops now like the over 21 legal pot shops like they are strains that are 
you know, very, very hybridized. They're very intense. They're very powerful. I've heard this from our former employees at the bakery. We knew that, you know, a lot of them did party and use marijuana. Um, so I just said, you know, so you've got that and it's already so much stronger than what the pot that was growing around or even pot that was like, you know, grew specifically. There were some strains of marijuana I remember smoking in college and that were pretty, you know, would get you pretty stoned. But I said, it's a lot different now and then you don't know what's in it and you shouldn't trust anybody. So don't even like take what you think is a cold tablet. You know, just, so I think they were like, well, I wouldn't say it was necessarily smooth, but it was just opening the door like, yes, mom has had experience with this. Yes, things are a lot different. You just can't like experiment and mess around because there's so many more harsh things like this, like fentanyl that are laced in things or people are lacing other drugs into, um, you know, to each other, mixing yeah. and matching. So you don't know what quantity you're getting. So whether we effectively scared them away from experimenting or not, we definitely expressed that we are both scared about yeah. them potentially experimenting and yeah. got the point across. We did our best. That's what it's like when you talk to your kids. Right. The only other thing I would like to add about what our kids think about this is that we are glad that our son, our youngest, whose bedroom is directly below this little office nook where we do a lot of the recording and a lot of our video calls has a hearing loss, which I shouldn't be laughing about that. And it's not a funny subject at all, but it's, it's almost like divine intervention that the kid that sits directly below us while we're on video calls can't, can't hear very well. Yeah. As soon as he takes his hearing aids out, he's, yeah, he's really struggled. So it is sort of nice that we have a little extra privacy, little tiny bit of silver lining with that challenge that he faces. For the most part, I think they look at what we do as a job like any other. And the other thing that's interesting about what we do is we both have much more relatable jobs for the kids. You work at the church that the kids attend, both as the Sunday school director and as a substitute in the preschool. And so that's a tangible thing that they see Mm -hmm. and have interacted with. And I coach high school soccer, and they've all played soccer, and they all participate in school activities. So that's a much more tangible thing even though the recovery work might be like what is it you guys do in that room yeah like it still leaves a little bit of air of like unknown yeah but they don't quite get it and our daughter she gets it a little bit more i think because we've talked to her about things like that and she's older um also with the food work that we've done that's in schools and some other little you know parts of our nonprofit. um they get it because they've helped with the food work. Yeah. I think most of them have helped like deliver food to schools when there's been days off and you've taken them along or you need an extra hand or an extra driver for the older ones. So I think for the most part they just couldn't care less either way. And like most kids. Well, Catherine had a friend who didn't realize that her mother worked at the middle school where all of our kids have have either had attended or currently attend and she was adamant that her brother her middle brother had no idea what he was talking about that that was not her friend's mother that worked at the school that was not her friend's mother who was the math intervention teacher period the end because her friend had no idea what her mother did i crazy. thought that was hilarious and these girls well, were in high school that's just crazy well okay so Thank you for that question, listener, and we'd love to have those keep flowing. We love receiving them. Again, send your questions to matt at soberandunashamed.com. We're going to transition into our subject. It 
We are talking about generational trauma, which is why I chose that listener question, because they asked about kids. And we're going to talk about breaking the cycle of passing this bad stuff down from one generation to another. I wish I had known how I would influence my kids. And I put emphasis on the word how. I knew when we, before we had babies, I knew that I could influence our kids by showing them good work ethic, by being faithful and teach them about being faithful, by talking to them and exhibiting avoiding debt, except for the mortgage on your house, uh, by being honest and loyal. And I know that, that there are probably a lot of people in alcoholic relationships that are saying, Matt, how can you even pretend that you were honest? I know that's a contentious subject. I thought I was being honest even when I was gaslighting. So that's maybe a subject we could cover another day. But I certainly thought that one of the things that I would teach my kids was about being honest and loyal and how to love family and, you know, the fact that socialism really doesn't work. I don't want to get all political, but I definitely... Um, had things on my list that I wanted to, to gosh, you're rolling your eyes at me. Well, it's a no politics zone. That's like kind well, of echoes of recovery and shouts of variety is a no politics zone. We can express our, our opinions freely on, I just think all politics. Okay. Well, but anyhow, so yes, you had clear Forget that ideas. I talked about socialism. <laughs> my bad. Um, but yeah, these are, you know, these are platitudes. I even looked up what the word platitudes mean, means to make sure I was using it properly. You've got me all stressed out about just winging it and not, not having details. I looked up the first day of Hanukkah. I looked up what platitudes means. But these, these kind of lofty things like work ethic and faith and honesty and loyalty, I, I wanted and thought, no brainer, I'll be able to pass these things down to my kids. What I didn't understand that I understand really well now is that our mannerisms get passed down to our kids too and and maybe even more smoothly and seamlessly and without any conscious effort. And that's really scary. <coughs> I want to give an example of what I mean in making the distinction between mannerisms and platitudes. On a recent Echoes of Recovery call, someone in our group talked about the fact that she was struggling because she talks badly about her spouse to her kids. And that is something that she experienced as a child. Her mother talked poorly about her father to her. And that is a trait that she, even though she hated it when her mother did it, she can't stop doing it with her own kids. And I, it, I just crawled to the edge of my seat. I was so interested in that comment because I do the same thing. Not exactly the same thing, but I tease my kids. That's a natural... And I've talked about this on the podcast because I have a horrible amount of guilt about it. But I tease my kids. That is a way that I interact with them. And I can't stop myself. Sometimes mid-making fun of something they've said or done, in the middle of the sentence, I know I should stop. Mm-hmm. And I can't. And it's because I was teased as a kid, and this is not a me bashing my dad podcast. I I imagine this is how he was raised. I really don't know, but it came so naturally to him, and it wasn't mean-spirited, but when the the teases pile up, they start to hurt, and they start to cause real problems. Right, and you've got kids that have different personalities and Mm -hmm. different bandwidths. We've got one that 
is kind of a jokester and really appreciates the ribbing. And he is a ribber himself. So that is that is kind of like, I don't know, I want to say his love language. But we also do a really good job in other areas where we um, kind of surround him with support. Mm-hmm. Um, but they but also get to witness, and they, we have three boys and a girl. I am also a sexist. Uh, so while I'm admitting all my wonderful characteristics, I don't tease my daughter nearly as no, much as I tease she the boys. Get... And when I was growing up, my sister didn't get teased. She got loved on and princessed, right? And I got teased. And again, not blaming. I mean, that was my dad thought that was a form of love. Mm-hmm. And I do the same thing even when I'm consciously trying not to. Yeah. Well, I'm. I can speak to what you said about the the. Our uh, member of Echoes talking about her husband to her children. I I struggled with that too. I mean, I had my parents were divorced, so it wasn't like a a daily or frequent occurrence where there were situations where you know my dad came to our house and he had you know drank after work and he would come to pick us up for his weekend. And my mom wouldn't let him take him, or they still interacted because of child support or disciplining my older sister and, you know, just co-parenting and that sort of stuff. There there were times where there were fights and arguments because they were interacting, um, you know, or times that I didn't even see my dad, like, be drunk, but my mom would say, you can't go with your dad because he's drunk. I just hate it when he drinks and those sort of things. So there is, like... You know, that negative connotation that does get passed down, but then that... But there's also something more internal when it comes to the generational trauma that isn't just those sort of things, because that's an outward. It's that internalized thing. Like, you know, I first learned about generational trauma when I was speaking with... Well, let me interrupt you. I'm sorry, because I want to hear more about what you're saying, because I'm actually learning... I think I'm about to learn something for the first time. I don't know. One Okay... Yes, you have shared on the podcast, you have shared with me that your mom bashed your dad um, and I, when he was drinking. Yeah. I never saw you do that to me. Did you do that behind, like when I wasn't within earshot? Or did you have to work really hard to suppress that? But one of the things that I've, thinking about it, you, you know... You knew I'd go apeshit, so maybe that's right. the reason. Well, part but you of, never bashed me to the kids so, that I know of. So part of that, yes. I mean, like, there were conversations, like, out of your shot or when you were passed out, well, Dad's drunk and we're having another fight or argument or, sorry. So you would Dad say drunk. Not. So later, much yeah. later in, you know, not early on, I would just say, oh, Mom and Dad aren't getting along, yeah. we're stressed or whatever, you know. So I tried really hard to avoid it, but the more that your alcoholism was attacking our relationship. I just felt like I couldn't handle it. So having like our older daughter, I feel very guilty because I exposed her to that knowledge. But I didn't have, and I didn't feel like I could explain it away anymore. I didn't want her to think you were like crazy or bipolar. You know, I'm not linking those together to be mean, but like I didn't want her to misunderstand that there was the drinking dad who sometimes can be unpredictable but then there was the really good dad and the really good person all the time like when you weren't drinking like i wanted her to understand that the alcohol was affecting your behavior good bad or ugly that it wasn't you 
Um, also, I mean, I had to play the intercessor a lot, like between you and the kids, like they would come to me and I would introduce an idea that they wanted to do. And then if it was a negative response from you, they would be very upset and they would talk to me about it and they'd get frustrated. And I would say, well, that's just your dad's choice. He just doesn't understand. I mean, that still even kind of happens currently, but that's okay. Cause now you're not drinking and you don't like make it seem like you're the authoritarian and you're the be all end all. You know, I say, I would say like your dad can have a different opinion. He doesn't understand like your feelings behind it. He doesn't get it, whatever it was. You know, I I tried really, really hard not to bash you because I didn't want to have those feelings of uncomfortableness between you and the kids because I felt very uncomfortable around my dad a lot of times. So I didn't want that for them and, and you would play games with them and you coach soccer and you showed a lot of interest and I wanted to keep have them keep remembering that. Do you feel like you... Okay, so first of all, we talk a lot about age-appropriate conversations with kids and how that's really important. So because you're specifically saying that it was our our daughter who was our oldest that you more would say things like your dad's drunk to it sounds like you waited until she reached an age where it made sense to talk that way? Yeah, and and then, yeah, like I had, you know, like in... When she moved to a bedroom on a different floor, um, she was a little bit older. Um, it was just kind of a really hard time. I kind of told her about that. And then I also had to kind of loop in our oldest son because he was yeah. upstairs and shared a bedroom with um, the really, you know, the the really good listener kid that could hear any sort of creak or, you know, like we, you said, the whisper screaming. Like, he could hear mm-hmm. stuff. And our oldest son, I said, you know, we, you've just got to work on, like, telling him it's okay. I can't come in to the room if you hear it. Yeah. Well, I I only bring that up because, to you know, kudos to you. When, I, when they were running around in diapers, you weren't screaming, your dad's drunk again. Right. And just, it wasn't, it doesn't sound like it was done to bash me. It was done because they reached an age where... Not only could they handle the truth, but they needed to know the truth to protect them from, like you said, thinking, you know, just being confused by what the heck is going on. Right. Um, Do you feel like you talked about me that way less than what you experienced as a child, less than your mother did? Yeah, I feel like I, even though we lived together and my parents did not, I don't, you know, I can't like add it up. But I feel like I talked less like that and I tried to like, you know, I would say I hate it when he's drinking. I hate the way alcohol affects him or I don't like this when he's drinking versus, you know, I feel like my mom kind of gave a, gave the impression that it was just him and he like, you know, it was, she didn't like my dad. That's why we had to get divorced. Now, like, you know, and... 25 years down, you know, ago, she started, like, recognizing that alcoholism is a disease and she could really kind of parcel out, like, it was just the alcohol that made my dad unreliable, unpredictable, and that there were a lot of good parts about him um, after some work. But I tried really hard not to do that. And I tried not to use the word drunk quite as much as Mm -hmm. my mom. 
did and used the word booze because I don't know for some reason. Did you tell them that I'd fallen off the wagon? My favorite all time. Well, saying. you have words like that, but drunk and booze, like those were things that my mom used to say, and it just seemed very venomous. Is how I interpreted that as a kid. So I don't, I didn't want to use those. I would say alcohol or beer. Um, you know, he's drinking. And then I explained like what intoxicated was. Instead of you, you know, tried to avoid just the things that I felt were trigger words. And who knows, maybe the words I chose are going to be trigger words for our kids. I don't know. It's hard. I am really proud of you, though, that you made the effort to use scientific, more scientific sounding words as opposed to the, the slang that you tried to do it. Less and only when it was age appropriate. It doesn't sound like you were bashing me as much as you were delivering facts in an efficient way. Yeah, but and no, I'm I'm serious. I think when we talk about topics like generational trauma and the things that we pass down, I don't think it's. Uh, listen, from my experience, it is not as simple as you just make this determination. That I'm going to be different and and it's not going to be the way it was when I was raised. There, It might be better than it was the way I was raised. And maybe our kids will do it even better than us. But I don't think it's the kind of thing that's a clean break. Breaking the cycle of generational trauma, I think, from our experience, is, is something that has to... Because listen, I, this teasing of our kids thing, going back to that. I try really hard on a conscious level not to do it. And so here's my contribution to it getting better from, you know, when I was a kid to our kids being kids. Not only do I try to do it less, and I think I effectively do it a little bit less, but I also try really hard to give them just straight up accolades for things that we're proud of them for, whether it be something in school or an extracurricular activity or being nice to the neighbor lady down the street. You know, just anytime I see them do something that I'm proud of, I think I think my father would internalize that pride. I think he was very proud of me, but he didn't express that like in the moment. Mm-hmm. Like when when I say goodbye to my father after we've spent time together, he always tells me he's proud of me and it always feels really good to hear. But it's it's like, let me tease, 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 tease. Let me, now let me tell you I'm proud of you. Mm-hmm. And I, so I, so one of the efforts that I'm making is, and I know, so the reason I'm kind of staying on this topic for a minute is because I know from the people that we work with that this trait of males teasing males is super prevalent. I mean, it's how we interact in the workplace with other males. It's how we interact with our friends when we're watching sports. This is not a mat issue as much as it is a gender issue. And so... So, again, one of the things that I try really hard to do is, as much as I'm regretting some of the teasing, I'm telling the kids, you know, hey, that was really awesome that you stopped and talked to so-and-so because I know they're having a hard time and I know you might have been uncomfortable. That was cool that you stuck out that conversation and maybe made them feel a little bit better. Just little things. Mm -hmm. Now, while I'm falling on the sword, um, and I have mixed emotions about this. I still, I am the oldest 
49-year-old on the planet, I still write a Christmas letter every year because I like to write the Christmas letter. We receive zero Christmas letters from our friends and family. We receive those like snapfish pictures that are lovely. They're delightful. And usually you flip it over and there's a picture of the family pet on the backside. That's great. No words other than like happy holidays or happy new year or Merry Christmas or whatever. I go the opposite. I write a single space, two page letter. <laughs> in microscopic font. So it gets all in. And I, I, I decided years ago, I'm not going to write, oh, you know, Jimmy, uh, got the lead in the play and he's got all A's and one B and because I'm like who cares about that nobody's going to want to read that so so I basically spend the whole letter making fun of us myself included I tease myself but I tease the kids and I have mixed emotions about this because like I said I've got this guilt about teasing and it's something I don't want to pass down but the kids read the letters and they love it when we go to get our Christmas tree which takes us all day and we drive a long distance they sit in the back and read the old letters to each other. So it's definitely a family tradition. Yeah. So, like, do you feel okay about the old Christmas letter, even though it falls into the category of me teasing all of us? Yes. There have been times where I have said, oh, I think you need to pull back on that. And we've had a discussion about whether or not you were going to pull back on something that you tease. But I think that you're just highlighting their day-to-day activities and personalities versus so much calling out and teasing. And that's what I think that they appreciate rather than all these, you know, accolades of how perfect my child is. Like, here's our real kids. Here's our real house. This is this is what they do. I mean, I think that, I don't think that they are embarrassed by that necessarily. Well, I have um, to tell you, it's, you know, there's all, I'm very limited in how I can write because I only know certain, like I can't do poetry, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. There are things I can't do. And so, as much as I enjoy writing that letter, the sarcasm comes supernaturally, and I feel guilty. So I'll sit there, and I'll giggle to myself while I'm writing it, and also feel like the world's worst father at the same time. Yeah. So you have sort of a David Sedaris style, you know... I am not uh, nearly as good as he is. Yeah, well, that's why I said style, sort of. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Just teasing you. Yeah, that's good. Um. He is one of the greatest ever, though. But they're te- they, uh, but they know that I think that there's such a balance, and you, and maybe not so much when you were drinking, but I still think you did a really good job of saying I love you every night, and you, we had a tuck in routine and things like that. I think that you kind of rounded out the teasing a little bit with with um, attention and accolades verbally, that they kind of feel like you highlighting some of their funniness. And being sarcastic about it is a way to show that you are proud and you love them and they think it's their their feeling of love for you. They have lots of others. I'm not saying it well. Well, it's much harder now that they're older because they don't do the goofy stuff that they used to Mm -hmm. when it comes to writing the Christmas letter. I mean, the all-time greatest was when one of our children was still in diapers, he had his little plastic saw and he was walking around the house sawing wood things with it, but he was leaving a mark. (laughs) And you did a great job of telling him to saw the pillows and don't saw the, the soft dining room table. And he went in his room and he came back out naked and he was sawing on his own little penis <laughs> with his little plastic saw. We should tell our listeners he did no damage to himself. Yeah. It wasn't sharp. It's just the little, yeah. But, the plastic ones are. 
But I mean, this is what they used to give me. This Christmas letter used to write itself. I all I had to do was Be have observant. my eyes open. Yeah, um, but now that they're like adults and near adults, it's really hard to to find the goofiness, find the cute little things. Now, yeah. So I wrote about a six year old girl in our church this year that isn't even part of our family. Well, she's a part of our family. Okay. Yeah, part of God's family, spiritual community, greater family, good friends. She's pretty awesome. But anyhow, um, so the thing that I wanted to like just kind of go back to our (laughs) subject at hand instead of just this conversation. We're on subject generational trauma. But I think because I, even though I changed my verbiage, there was still the reaction. There was still the feelings that were being within you or within me. Okay, that were being picked up. So instead I mean, of calling me a drunk, you referenced alcohol. Yes. Dad's, been, Dad's had too many beers tonight. He's not behaving like himself. Mm-hmm. My face, the vibe I gave off, all of that is there. They figured it out. They picked sure. it up. That's where, you know, that's the kind of stuff. So have I, I've been worried, like, have I made them very hesitant into getting into a relationship and we'll see that as they approach young adulthood. Like, I, you know, I mean, some kids, you know, have a girlfriend their whole time, girlfriend or boyfriend the whole time in high school or most of their high school year. Or then, she, you know, our, our daughter's a junior in college, so she's got friends that have found someone that they are really stuck with, you know, their freshman and sophomore year that they met in college. Um... I want our children to date a lot of different people to get, you know, to really know themselves and and to find a good life partner. But have I almost made it seem like marriage is a bad thing? Because that's what I felt like coming in. Because, you know, I grew up most of my life without a father figure in the home. I was a freshman when my mom remarried. A freshman in high school when my mom remarried. You know... I was two when my parents were divorced. So for me, like being an independent woman in a marriage where I didn't want to have to answer to you or I didn't want to have to compromise, I didn't want to have to do those things, I, that was a struggle for me. So have I passed some of that down? I mean, my mother's mother, I don't think, was very happy in her relationship, in her marriage, you know, after. 10 or 15 years from where it sounds like with my grandfather's failing health it was almost like he was a burden and there was this level of unhappiness and depression that I could see and sense in her um she wasn't outward about it but like is that a generational trauma that I'm passing on well I think it fits into the category of what we talked about earlier we are doing better than the generations before us I want to say a lot of what you're talking about, your experiences, we recently recorded a podcast where one of the main themes was you are a pessimist and I am an optimist. That didn't come genetically. That came from our experiences in childhood. And so a lot of what you're describing leads to your pessimism. And so it's natural for you to have pessimism about the institution of marriage and whether it's worth it and whether it's a good thing or not. That doesn't have anything to do with your commitment level. You definitely were as committed as I was when we first got married. And and obviously, um, it took a massive commitment to get through what we've been through. 
but I, you know, as it, you know, there's two, when you talk about what you're talking about, there's two observations that I think are kind of stark for me. One is because I stopped drinking six years ago, I stopped drinking when our kids were all still in the house, they were at varying ages. The impact that it had on the kids was different. I don't think, I think it's just a coincidence that our oldest is a girl and it impacted her more. I think, as much as I like to point out gender things, I don't think this is a gender thing. I think this is an age thing. I think she was just exposed to more at an age where she was able to comprehend. And so I definitely think my drinking, when you talk about dating in high school, and, you know, she, she exhibits some of those tendencies to be a fixer and to try to, um, you know, seek out friends who are in need and, and she can try to be the partial solution for them. And same thing with in dating scenarios to some degree, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, but below her, I, I don't really have any concerns with any of the rest of them as it relates to dating and relationships. I mean, our oldest son has, um, I mean, you know, he's had lo- like long-term relationship is like three months or maybe I guess that one was maybe six months. But then he's like, eh, we were just drifting apart different interests and so we broke up and like just matter of fact like not i don't know i i just everything i see out of him seems really really healthy and then our younger two are just kind of too young to know um but i i think this falls into the category of the same thing with the teasing it's we're doing better than the the generation before us and that's all we can do and hopefully our kids will do better than us and hopefully by talking about it we can shine a light into the the pain points and and help all of us get over it. I don't know. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, I think I I had mentioned before, and you didn't want to quite go there when I was in um, one of the therapists that I had worked with was talking about generational trauma, and I hadn't really ever heard of that before, and. So I started doing a little bit of reading, but it's like, you know, families that grew up in the depression and were really struggling, like the feeling of food insecurity goes through families that had, you know, that were of Jewish faith that were, um, put in concentration camps. Like those are traumas that just kind of are genetically an empath and like put in our neurons that pass down. So I always wonder like where the, you know, some of these things, because you kind of have to know your family history a little bit too to figure out what it is that you want to try to change and rectify and talk to your kids about if you're trying to face it off. So I had some conversations with my mom about it, and that's when she kind of told me a little bit more about my my grandmother and her, you know, dis, her unhappiness in, have in, in marrying and you know, and I just wonder how far back some of this stuff goes and what kind of, what we don't know. That's what kind of is worrisome to me is what we don't know that's brought in from, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a good thing to think about. I, I think the best thing that we can do going forward, like I've already got a plan. When our kids are getting pregnant, I'm going to talk to each one of them and, and not in the... I am all knowing you must listen to me kind of way that I have a tendency to talk to them, but in a much softer way and say, listen, here's something I really struggled with. 
For the first half of your growing up, I didn't know I was doing it. Then once I became aware, I was shocked that it was even hard for me to stop doing it even once I was aware. So you need to be aware of this because this is what you experienced growing up. And it's going to be hard for you not to act this way too. And hopefully they, right from infancy, can work on it. And like I said, you know, they'll be better at it than I was. And then maybe it'll fade away with their kids. Who knows? Yeah. All we can do is do our best. And, you know, the other thing is we can create a good example of what marriage and relationships looks like now. And hopefully, you know, they're, they're past their formative years, but hopefully some of that sticks. I want to talk about generational trauma directly related to alcohol. I know what we've been talking about has a relationship with alcohol for sure. But what I'm talking about now is how alcohol was normalized for me as a child. I didn't see drinking or not drinking as an option. All of the adults in my life, specifically, especially the men, drank. My dad, my grandfather, so the two kind of idols that I worshipped, my uh, all of their friends, all of their co-workers. As I got older, you know, all of my peers, all of my friends were experimenting with alcohol. So there was nothing unique about my path with alcohol. And but but the point I want to drive home is I didn't think of alcohol as an option. I you know obviously I knew there is free will and you do the things you want to do, but you know because everyone drank and there was such an expectation around it, I never thought of being sober as a reasonable lifestyle. So, um, you know. And I also do want to mention, especially because we are in the holidays right now, holiday patterns are a big part of that, too. I think even people who are moderate drinkers or just occasional drinkers, once the holidays come, I mean, it becomes kind of overwhelming the degree to which alcohol is expected. So... For me, accepting that alcohol was a choice was a huge hurdle for me to get over in sobriety. When you think about what has to take place in sobriety, you, your brain chemistry has to get straightened out. That takes about a year. Your subconscious mind, the patterns, you know, hey, it's Friday night. That Friday night's a drinking night. Um, you know, oh, there's a football game on. I'm grilling. I'm skiing. These are all things I do with a beer in my hand. I can't not have a beer when I'm doing these things. Those patterns, you have to get over those. You have to learn. You don't have to, but I think you should learn about recovery nutrition. You should learn about the waves of emotions that are going to come over you. There's so much learning to be done in early sobriety. But one that doesn't get talked about enough, and you and I don't talk about it a lot, is there was a huge hurdle to accepting that alcohol is a choice. Mm-hmm. I carried a ton of shame in early sobriety because I was... I thought I was the only one not drinking, right? Right. Well, we just associated with drinkers. I wasn't the only one not drinking. There's lots of people who yeah, don't drink. Yeah, I mean, I grew up with a totally different viewpoint. I right. still drank and experimented with alcohol. I didn't drink and indulge as much as you did because it never really did the thing for me that you it did for you. The it euphoria. That just, you know, there was a little euphoria and then there was the freaking hangover in the morning. It just, you know, just it was... It's clear that it's a poison now yeah. when I think about it. Um, so, 
I didn't have those sort of feelings. So drinking, I could see, was a choice, was an option. And we had people that we knew. You just wanted to, you just tended to, like, go and hang out with the drinkers. So, you know, people I hung out with weren't of interest to you that didn't really drink, like, the way you wanted to drink. So we kind of did circle our, you know, yeah, friends around that drinking lifestyle without real substance and just last I'm just I'll make this brief but last May so May of 2022 our oldest son graduated from high school and we were throwing a a joint party with six other people a graduation party these were people that have all they were kids that most of them, with the exception of one or two, knew each other from preschool. Yeah, and we been kind together of a long time. Went all the way up. Now that some of them were not super duper tight friends, but most of them were all still very close friends and hung out together. And I was concerned about having alcohol where it wasn't going to be controlled and kids drinking and you know alcohol like, for the adults for the adults yeah and party. kids like grabbing a beer or bringing in their own and or sneaking a drink while we didn't have to worry about them sneaking drinks they were certainly carrying around their beers because yeah. it was at a private you know location um, but I remember sitting there in the midst of the parents and we were planning this and they kind of assumed that. Like, one of them said, well, I hope that my son at least tries a beer. I've, like, forced a truly on him just because I know that he's going to go to college and he's going to have no experience with alcohol. And, I mean, it's going to happen. And I looked at her and I said, why do you think that he has to do this? Why do you think it's not his choice? If he's chosen to abstain from alcohol for so long and is avoiding it, like, yeah. why do we have to assume that all high school kids are going to drink? Yeah. There is a choice. That, that that's that's and a I, mindset that I can totally relate to, and I don't think I would have had I that opportunity. Totally appreciate your mindset now, but I never would have before. I would have thought, "Yeah, <laughs> well, this woman's right. Everybody drinks." Well, that's what I would have thought too. Drinks. But then I thought, "Gosh, there are kids that didn't experiment in high school." You know, I knew a ton of them. Why am I not remembering those kids? At, at Being that, six years sober, I see why it's so. Of course, then I just look like. Oh, the abstainer. And then, oh, they're not, the sailors, they aren't even going to chip in for the alcohol. And I'm like, no, that's not the point. I just want it more controlled. And I don't want everybody to think that it's not a choice. You know, a really cool memory of mine from that same event, you're right, the, the teenagers, the graduates started grabbing beers. And, you know, I remember you were a little more um, vigilant. about it. Well, you were... Paying you attention. Were, contemplating turning off the music and turning the lights up bright and <laughs> and rounding all the kids up but and I was I more like was listen there are six families here we can't exert yeah. our exert control over this whole thing but uh, our son's high school band played a few songs at the party and I remember sitting there and watching our son Nick on the bass guitar just looked like he was having the time of his life he was playing and he was singing at one point and I don't know the the five or six kids right in front of him that were listening and excited. They were all drinking, and he wasn't. And I thought, not just proud of him because he himself was making that choice, but it was just it was really kind of profound looking. 
I mean, when you go to concerts, you expect the band members to all have a beer next to them, and some of them are drinking it a lot, and some of them are sipping on it, but it's part of the culture of rock and roll and grunge music and what we grew up with, right? Mm -hmm. And here the, you know, in, in my mind, and this is very judgmental sounding, but the kid without the musical talent, the kids without the musical talent are slurping down beers in front of them, and the kids with musical talent are not drinking, and I was like, wow. That's kind of profound. These guys have spent, instead of spending their time drinking away their weekends, they spent time learning these skills, and now they're on display, and isn't this cool? Yeah, well, because they found outlets for their creativity and energy, and and they wanted to learn. And that's where I was like, yeah, there were a lot of kids that I went to high school with that probably didn't drink, and I went back thinking about all the things that they did that was creative or yeah. academic or athletic, not, you know... They, they really poured their heart into it. And so they didn't want alcohol to, to mess that up. And the kid that I was speaking about, where his parents were, like, really worried that he hadn't, like, experimented. Yeah. I was like, oh, my gosh. He is, like, a fantastic skier, a runner. He loves his bike. He, he well, plays instruments. Like, he has his thing that gets him excited. So why are we going to add a poison to it? Or why are we going to try to introduce a drug to it to, like... Stump that. This is another example of of how you have reacted to generational trauma. Your sister's quite a bit older than you, and when she was raising her young kids, she was the mom, and we all know the moms, they're the dads that do this. She was the mom that said, you can all come over to my house and drink as long as you and your friends stay here. I want your car keys when you get here. Well, this can be the party house, but nobody drinks and drives. Right. And that is a... Not uncommon way of handling teenagers. Your story about Nick's friend who whose mom said, you know, basically forcing alcohol on him before he goes off to college made me think of that. And so you saw your sister parent that way and you were adamantly not going to parent that yeah, way. Yeah, and I think we had like a two-year-old at the time or one-year-old. Right. And I was like, in my mind I thought, oh my God, like the legality of it all. Like what if somebody gets really alcohol poisoning, you know, the damage that could happen. Like, I just thought, why would you open that door? Well, I just think it's, you know, so we've had examples when we talked about my teasing, when we talked about you bad-mouthing me. These are areas where we're getting a little better than the generation before us. We're doing our best, but it's not a cut-and-dry difference. Now we're talking about some things, you know, how, how we view teen consumption of alcohol, and that alcohol is a choice. It's not a foregone conclusion. These are ways that we have made hard and fast distinctions between what what I saw growing up and what our kids are seeing. Our kids view alcohol as a choice. Do I think that all four of them will never drink alcohol? Of course I don't think that. I mean, that's ludicrous. And I've told them I don't think that. Right. But... I mean, I can't tell you how good I feel about the fact that they view it as a choice and not a foregone conclusion. And so some of this generational trauma, we're doing our best, but we're not all the way there. Some of it, we're all the way there. Mm -hmm. We are all the way there as it relates to alcohol being a choice. You know, some of the other things that we've, that we've passed down that, again, are not the platitudes. They are the mannerisms, you know, the anxiety, the tension, the walking on eggshells. The lack of peace and joy. These are all things that our kids have experienced at different ages. So it has impacted them differently. And 
all that I can think of that we can do is offer and suggest therapy, which we have done and will continue to do for our kids and try to create a better example. But this is the stuff that, you know, we think, oh, I'm a great parent because I have taught my kids not to take on credit card debt. But I've also passed down anxiety, tension, walking on eggshells and a lack of peace and joy. But let's not worry about that. I taught my kid not to take on credit card debt. And um, I just think that's super naive. This there, there are things that are associated with alcoholism that get passed down, whether you like it or not, whether you think it's getting passed down or not, whether you are arguing outside of earshot or not, whether they see beer cans scattered around or not. It's, it's getting the, these, these things that I'm listing here are getting passed down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit more since it is. Big time holiday season. I want to read... A, well, it's not a quote because I didn't... I already did all my research when I looked up Hanukkah and the definition of the word platitudes. So I had no more energy to look up this direct quote. But we all know it from the movie Christmas Vacation. Beverly D'Angelo's character, Mrs. Griswold. I can't think of her first name. She tells Chevy Chase's character, Clark W. Griswold that he sets expectations that no family event could ever live up to. I've watched the movie enough. That I, that's, I think that's spot on. But, I, yeah. you know, it's, it's close if it's not. He sets expectations that no family event can ever live up to. I'm here to say Clark W. Griswold is not alone. A lot of us at the holiday times have these idealistic, you know, who was the guy that used to do the... The family scenes I referenced before. The painter. Bob? Bob the curly-haired dude? Yeah. Who are you? Oh, Norman Rockwell. Norman Rockwell. It was like family scenes, but when you were... So he's have this hand motion. Have this hand motion that you're like painting happy little trees. Happy little trees. (laughs) So I was like, what? Like That's why I was like, Bob? That guy's hair was so good. So... But But Norman Rockwell. So yeah, we we have these Norman Rockwell ideas. And... Listen, I hear it from the people that we work with. I want this idealistic childhood. Maybe I want it because I didn't get it when I was a child. Maybe I want it because I did get it as a child. But I want perfection at the holiday season. We hear that a lot. It's not possible. We are desperate to create magical moments for our kids. And we set the standard so high that the result in reality is crushing disappointment. Because it will be something less than what we picture in our heads. I think this is super common. And this is a high standard that we set without alcohol. So I'm not even blaming alcohol for people having these expectations of perfection. But when you add alcoholism in, it makes it you know, even that much more impossible to live up to the expectations. Um, as we kind of wrap up, I want to give just some some thoughts on where people, where different people are in the addiction and recovery cycle. If you are in active addiction, either you are the drinker or you are the loved one of a drinker, the situation for this holiday week, you know, my humble opinion and Sherry, I think you'll agree with me is do your best to try to detach, keep your expectations low It's not going to be anything remotely close to perfect. Go into it with that understanding. And if you have kids, focus on your kids. 
try to detach from the alcohol and the alcoholic and focus on your kids and don't beat yourself up when it's not perfect because it's not going to be if you're in early sobriety you have to survive four years before you can thrive this was a lesson that you and I learned the hard way like we said we're six years sober and I think we're going to have a pretty good Christmas but the first few Christmases of sobriety were still stressful anxiety ridden triggering even when I was past the cravings to drink triggering about traumas of the past and experiences so I think I was way more optimistic than you were thinking the first Christmas sober is going to be great it's not I'm here to tell you it's not so you've got to be in the mindset that you're going to survive for a few years and then you can start to thrive down the road look for peace not joy accept that the triggers are everywhere you know Make a plan to go give yourself uh, some private time to breathe when you experience some of the triggers because they're going to happen. You know, making it through this Christmas can lead to great Christmases later, but you have to get over this hump. And like I said, it's probably not a one-year hump. It's a several-year hump. And then um, big thing that even applies to you and I, Sherry, and and I'm going to make it a priority, and I hope that you will too, we got to check in with each other. The holidays are stressful, and with added stress comes resentments. Not intentional resentments, but resentments all the same. So, you know, you and I have had a tendency to when things are going well or when we're just too busy to blow off our weekly meetings that you and I think are so important. Even though we think they're important, we have had a tendency to blow them off. And I'm going to insist that we not. And even to check in more often than weekly especially once my family comes to town for the for a visit. Or just like whenever just you're in stressful to, situations yeah. or like checking in about where you are on the list or, you know, like when you, you know, have a plan. Like so then each of you can have our expectations of like I expect that you're going to help clean on this day and you're working instead. Like if that wouldn't happen if you kind of have a little pregame. Yeah. meeting about some well, things and and Checking in, like you said, where you are daily, because sometimes you plan on stuff and things don't get, don't go the way you plan, and so you're stressed, and and then we have busy times. It just makes it even more stressful. That's a great way to close because whether people relate specifically to my generational piece of teasing the kids, whether they relate specifically to your generational piece of talking bad about me when I was drinking, whether or not they relate to that. Here's something that's a near universalism. Relationship communication is something that we as humans are bad at, typically. We're just shitty communicators with each other. And so, and we probably experienced that from our parents. So we that's a piece of generational trauma that we all seriously need to make a big time effort to break. So find ways to communicate, not just like while you're in the kitchen both cooking or not while you're watching a Christmas movie or working or doing any of the other nine million things, shut it all down, go sit in a chair in a quiet corner and talk and do it on a regular basis. Busy is a matter of priorities. And if you don't prioritize your relationship, it will be a disaster. So break that generational trauma of shitty relationship communication. How's how's that for a positive, uplifting message to end on? Yeah. I love you. Love you too. Merry Christmas. Uh-huh, Merry Happy Christmas. second day of Hanukkah. Okay. Here comes New Year's. Okay. Ho, ho, ho. 
Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.